satellite Sputnik entered orbit around the Earth. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. We don't want to uh, find the hammer and sickle flag standing up on one of the peaks of the moon. We want it to be the star-spangled banner. Looking at Russia, we might see it as a country to be studied, as we study other nations of the world. Ever hear of Karl Marx? ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little audio blips and bleenies we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and play you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Hello, everybody. Hello from Russia to you all. The U.S. and Russia have always had a curious relationship. We're curious about them, and they're curious about us. Like two kids forbidden to play together, we peer over the fence, hoping to catch a glimpse of each other's strange and foreign worlds. Communism, capitalism, Cold War, Glasnost, Sputnik, Explorer, the list goes on. Today on ReSound, we offer a few stories that shed some light on this mutual fascination. Stay with us. No contest between the U.S. and the USSR has been so back and forth, so neck and neck, so publicly trumpeted as the space race, which began in 1957 when the then Soviet Union launched Sputnik 1. Four years later, Yuri Gagarin became the first man in space. Three weeks after that, Alan Shepard became the first American. Now fast forward a few decades. Bill Clinton was president, the USSR had dissolved, relations with Russia were friendlier, and somewhere up in the heavens, the space station Mir was in orbit. With her feet firmly planted on Earth, an American-born ham radio operator in Australia was determined to make contact with that tiny speck in the sky. Thus began a most unconventional of Soviet-American relationships. Jesse Burrell tells the story. So this is the, the whole setup here. Yeah. So walk okay. me through it. Well, uh, let's go up to the antenna. I use that, and it looks like a white cane. So that's all it takes. Yep. That's all it takes. <laughs> See, even a housewife can do. That's Maggie Yaquinto. Um, my name is Maggie Yaquinto, and as you can hear from my accent, I was born in the states. Maggie hails from New Haven, Connecticut a small city located about 130 kilometres northeast of New York. She emigrated to Australia in the late 1970s. Now, a lot of people have a hobby, something they do that fascinates them, keeps them out of trouble or just kills spare time. You know, things like collecting stamps, playing bridge or grooming poodles into disarming imitations of pop stars. Maggie's hobby is talking to strangers. Or more precisely, her hobby is using ham radio to contact other amateur radio operators all over the world. And on some occasions, people out of this world. I had always wanted to be a ham radio operator. And at the age of 15 or 16, I told my dad that was it. I wanted to do that. And the only ham radio operator anybody knew around was the guy who was locally called Ralph the Rapist. So I wasn't allowed to go near him. And um, my family didn't have a lot of money and... So I kind of put that on the back burner. And it stayed on the back burner until she was about 30. I was 30, yeah, I was 30. 
Maggie studied for and received the novice license, which at the time meant she could only use Morse code to contact other radio operators. She later upgraded to voice. From her radio shack in New Haven, Maggie began to talk to people everywhere, all over the world, on every continent, including hams in Antarctica. Cold hams. And, and just because you wanted to communicate with, with people, is that the reason? Well, ham radio operators, there's, there's a whole group of us that just want to communicate. Yeah. And there's no way that I can visit every country in the world, but I can with ham radio. Mm. So I can talk to people and meet people. I mean, people do it on the chat lines, but back then, the only way I could do it was with ham radio. So I can, I can visit those places and meet people. Uh, Maggie's partner Lou had applied for a job he saw in the New York Times for an administrator at the notorious Pentridge Prison in Melbourne, Australia. He got the job, they married, assembled their belongings and switched hemispheres. Once they settled, Maggie raised her antennas, obtained an Australian amateur radio licence and was allocated a unique call sign. So I was VK3CFI. So it's 1991. The Gulf War is underway. A couple of backwards pants-wearing teenagers form a rap duo called Criss Cross. The Americans launch their space station Skylab. Paul Keating replaces Bob Hawke as PM here in Australia. As far as I'm concerned, wimps are out. Dr Zeus passes away, and the Uquinto family, Maggie Lou and her two young sons, Benjamin and Joshua, move down the road to Colac in country Victoria. At the time, it was common knowledge amongst hams that cosmonauts aboard the space station Mir were talking with amateur radio operators all over the world, including Australia. Maggie loved the idea. She really wanted to talk to them, and she had often tried to reach their call sign U2MIR. U2MIR. To no avail. The cosmonauts on board Mir, uh, there were two or sometimes three, and they're up there for six months at a time, and they have free time. Well, you can't play golf. Because, you know, and they had work to do and they had experiments, but they had free time. And one of them was always interested in radio. And he started communicating. And I had heard about that for years, not but two years. And people had talked to these Russians for quite some time. I wanted to desperately. And I tried and tried and tried for an entire year. And I wanted to contact this guy named Musa Manarov. This guy should heard about. Musa Manarov was one of the Soviet space program's most experienced of cosmonauts. He'd already completed several space flights and, at the time, had clocked up a total of 541 days in space, including 20 hours of spacewalks. Musa also sported what was possibly the most impressive moustache to ever transcend the Earth's atmosphere. Let's just say his upper lip was well insulated for his journey to the stars. Though Maggie was compelled to contact Musa, she couldn't do it. She couldn't get the right frequency, she didn't know what time they were orbiting over Australia. Because it's an FM signal, and an FM signal has a capture effect. So as soon as you make contact with my antenna, their antenna, and my equipment, then you've locked in the signal. That's wonderful. So even if the signal gets very weak, you still have that locked-in effect as somebody stronger whacks you out. But, um, yeah, so, so that was a whole computer program that I had to learn and uh, enter what they call Keplerian elements. So, you know, I'd get them from friends or I'd get them from the, um, the little internet there was. It was CompuServe. Um, he went back to Earth for a year. Good place. And then he was sent up on another mission. This time I'm going to do it. I had my radio shack and, my, you know, I have all my computer equipment there. And I brought out another um, 
a rig, it's called, another chance to see, but I left it in the kitchen, and we can make jokes about ham and eggs. You know you're a ham if, when someone asks you to spell your last name, you do it using the phonetic alphabet. You've got ham radio issues when, at local parties and bars, you find yourself uncontrollably mumbling CQ, CQ, CQ. CQ is um, a Morse code convention that people use in voice, and it means calling question. I want, I'll talk to anybody. You know you're a ham when you start thinking in Morse code. Anyway, Maggie, with her omnidirectional antenna, could follow Mia and track Musa across space. She had a rig set up in the kitchen and she left the radio on so that her signal could lock in with his. Eventually it did. Early one morning, it was back in 1991, it was January, it was hot. And I was up very early in the morning and having a cup of coffee and I heard this crackle. I thought, oh, this is interesting. And I heard this deep, heavy Russian, well, Russian was his third language, but heavily accented voice going, CQ, CQ, CQ. This is U2MIR, looking for contacts. I was so so happy. I was unbelievably happy. I said, well, this is it. And with great nervousness, I, I pressed the transmit button and I said, you two, M-I-R, this is VK3CFI. The handle is Maggie. Over. Let go. And he came back to me and he said, pleased to meet you. I spoke a little bit of Russian. I hadn't spoken Russian for like 30 years. It's not my first language. I only learned Russian. And then, of course, he went out of range, calling we call that going over the hill. Okay. So he went out of range. But I had made contact and I was jubilant. And should anyone have seen me at six in the morning out on my little street in Colac dancing, and I, I, I wow, I've done it. And the next morning, I'm drinking my coffee again. And he comes back and he calls me. And uh, I was just really thrilled. And we exchanged pleasantries and uh, names and all of that. And But I was restricted. One, I'm not that technical. Two, my Russian wasn't all that good. So what we ended up doing is that I would speak in Russian so he could hear my basic Russian, which is always basic. And he would reply in basic English. But that desire to communicate, that was the truly wonderful part about being a ham radio operator. What color is Australia? I have wanted to know that for a very long time. Oh, I'm glad you have a window. Okay, very good. So your voice was was actually, you know, transmitting into yes. into the mere space. Yes. Did that give you a thrill? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my God, I'm talking to the Russian space station. Oh, and yeah, I, I'd spoken to people all over the world, and it's always a thrill to meet anybody from anywhere. It doesn't matter. Um, that's that's the whole thing about ham radio operating. But here is where that need to communicate was so vital. 
I mean, did you? So, you, so you have like what a ten-minute window or something? Maximum. Maximum. So you couldn't Maximum. necessarily tell how long it was going to be, and would it cut out at any time? Yeah, it could. So when he didn't come back. He didn't come back. So I knew he'd gone over the hill. Musa and Maggie became close. He was like extended family, very extended. Musa called Maggie Rita, as in Margarita, her name in Russian. joked around a lot and got to know each other. Musa, when you are uh, in Moscow, when you are Moscovier, do you play football? Do you play baseball? What things do you like? Over. Maggie really likes baseball. When you're an amateur radio operator, there's always a moment in a conversation when you bond. Now, you may never have a bond, but there's something will trigger it off. Ah, you love roses, they love roses. Ah, there is a moment when you bond it. And with Musa, we talked about black Russians. Now, black Russian, as you know, is a drink, okay? And the derogatory term for people from the Caucasus amongst Mos- Muscovites is a black Russian. And so I did flirt and I said, well, I do like black Russians. <laughs> and he said, no vodka here. He said, this holy place, you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maggie and Musa, just like most amateur radio operators, talked shop, like in this clip where, one winter, Maggie was having trouble with her antennas. Take antenna from our space station. <laughs> They developed a kind of routine like Cosmic Pen Pals. These radio exchanges punctuated Maggie's days. There was always a time uh, every couple of weeks when there was no pass. And I just died. It's like, it's like if my computer isn't working, you know. I, I, I'm a little baby and I crawl into the table and I, you know, cry. I don't have an internet. Um, they, it'd be 5 in the morning, 5.30 in the morning. Our time is when they're having their free time. Rita! Rita! They go, talk to us! <laughs> 
And you hear this thick Russian accent. This guy. And so, you know, you put on your glass and you kind of stumble down the hall into the radio shack. Oh, yeah, good morning, good evening. <laughs> So between 1990 and 1995, you didn't sleep so well. Well, Ben and Josh are not good sleepers. Let's blame it on them. I was right. always awake. Radio was always on, and I'd always get woken up by these deep Russian voices. They'd be calling her. They'd be saying, Rita, Rita. And it would just be <laughs> kind of a, it was a really strange thing to wake up to. <laughs> Benjamin Yaquinto is Maggie's eldest son. While Ben knew that he and his younger brother Joshua were the only kids in Australia who awoke to Russian cosmonauts hollering from outer space for their mum, Maggie's radio habit was also quite commonplace to the family, and inevitably, sometimes life and ham radio would collide. Here's Ben again. I remember we always had massive aerials on our house, and no one else in the neighbourhood did, and we had this really cool one that could, that could rotate and follow the satellite as it moved across Australia. I'm moving my antennas, you know, the elevation, the azimuth antennas, trying to track him, where is he in the sky, and then Josh would have an asthma attack. I learned to say asthma in Russian. <laughs> Mia orbited the Earth half a dozen times a day, which added up to five, six, or even seven contacts with hams on Earth, including Rita. Since he didn't have a receptionist on Mia, Musa had wired up a kind of intercom, which meant that wherever he was in the craft, he wouldn't miss a call even if he was exercising on the stationary cycle they had installed in one of Mia's modules. So Musa would say, well, I'm, I'm paddling, he said, um, right now, uh, uh, as soon as I leave you, I'm going to paddle from here to Canada. Which sounds weird. <laughs> but then when he was at Canada, he'd get off the bike and he'd talk to some ham radio operators. As soon as he came over Australia, he knew. So he'd get ready to talk to... Lots of people, but also to talk to me. Yeah. So that was fascinating. Mm. Yeah. Uh, now, mostly ham radio operators talk about um, oh, personal things, of course, mm. but they stay away from politics. Okay. What kind of things did they express to you? Yeah. How personal did you get in terms of, of the... That was tough. That was tough. Um, they did talk a lot about EVAs, extravehicular activity, so that's the spacewalk. What was interesting was that as soon as they came back, the first thing they did was get on radio. I remember them talking about, they talked to mum about going on spacewalks. And I used to think a spacewalk was just something you did for recreation. But it was life-threatening because if you get disconnected or something, then you're just out in space and you mm. can't get back to the ship. So it was something that they took very seriously, but I just never understood that. The cosmonauts didn't talk about the emotional and psychological effects of being in space for long periods of time. They said they were trained for that. But the spacewalks gave gravity, so to speak, to the actual situation they were in. Spacewalks bared them to the risk, the loneliness, the fear, and the profundity of life on Mir, which in so many other ways had become an almost prosaic experience. The cosmonauts couldn't talk to their families very often. Friday and Saturday nights were family nights at Mission Control Moscow. And so the ability to talk with hands, no matter how momentary, alleviated the loneliness of months in orbit. So at this stage, 
language you could communicate in written language as well? Yeah, with Musa, it was voice only. And I told him I was interested in packet radio. Now, packet radio is... The method whereby, where I'm, I'm talking to another ham radio operator, my signal goes through the radio and it goes out the antenna. So instead of that, it takes keyboard input instead of voice input, converts all of that, and that goes out the antenna. But he has to have the same packet radio. He has to have a special modem. We had to have special modems, and he had to have the software configured for that. And he got it. They sent all that up. What do you teach? Uh, what uh, the kind of teacher uh, you are? I teach computers. Computers. I like computers, and I teach them at a very small high school, secondary school in Kolak. I have an antenna, and my students. Um, are learning about uh, amateur radio, radio sport, packet radio. No, как сказать по-русски? Packet radio. Понятно вам? Over. said, well, don't talk to me about your small country town. And I thought, oh, shoot. Uh, talk to me. You are a teacher. Teach me packet radio. I want you, I want you to teach me uh, radio. you got to realize this man's first language is Lok. And then, of course, he had to learn Azeri. And then he had to learn Russian. And then he learned English. And all those manuals are very heavy technical manuals. And they're all in English. Ouch. Ooh. What a way to learn English. I, I fell into a heap. I really did. I thought, wait a minute. I'm a housewife. <laughs> I'm a little teacher. And I know only a little bit about this stuff. How in heck am I going to teach? And he's a scientist. They're all scientists. Mm. How am I going to teach the scientists across the bridge? Almost a chasm of language. And the chasm over space. The real chasm. Ouch. From her radio shack in her home in Colac, she taught Muslim Anarif in his radio shack floating in space how to install and operate the packet radio system. Musa enthusiastically adopted the new technology and they prepared to make a packet radio contact. He said, look, I'd like to make that contact soon. I said, oh, they mean a couple of weeks. I want to connect now, now. No. Okay, I'm going to turn it on now. I'm going to turn it on now. Oh, Musa, very exciting. Please stand by. I am turning it I on. I ran into my radio shack, because I'm in the kitchen. I ran into the radio shack and turned on this old Toshiba laptop, which is slower than... And I finally got into it. That was it. He did. He went C-space. VK3CFI, enter, and there it is. It said, asterisk, 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 connected to U2MIR. And then he went over the hill. It was there on my screen. I was connected to the space station. Oh my God.
Maggie had just made history. Not only had she taught a Russian cosmonaut whose fourth language was English and an engineer no less how to use packet radio, she was also the first civilian to make computer-to-computer contact with a space station, ever. Exalted, the first thing she had to do was call the amateur satellite's coordinator for her area, VKLAND, and log the contact. I said, Graham, I just had a contact with the Russian space station on packet radio. <laughs> and he said, okay, good. Three days later, Musa had a contact with NASA in Houston. They have a ham radio station. Those guys published <laughs> that contact as the first ever contact with the Russian space station. No, you were robbed. Yes. Temporarily. Yes. So I contacted Graham. And he said, well, interestingly, he said, the guys in Broken Hill all had this contact in their herd logs. Everything that's done is recorded in a log. And it said the connect came between U2MIR and VK3CFI. So they corroborate, because they're not connected to anybody else except themselves. And they contacted Graham and said, why do I have a contact showing the Russian space station <laughs> and a VK contact in my herdlock? And that corroborated what I had to say. And I got the credit here. We Australians here in Victoria got the credit for having the first, not contact, the first computer contact. Maggie had made history, but more importantly to her, she'd made contact. While so many of us don't even have the desire to navigate the fluorescent inches between ourselves and the supermarket cashier, Maggie's desire to communicate outshone language, geography, space, and time zones. It's amazing. The one thing, all of the years that I talked to these guys, they loved gossip. What kind of gossip? Anything about them. Now, you've got to realize that the Soviet Union, and even after the breakup of the Soviet Union, the information exchange didn't happen. They still had a closed door on reading the newspapers in the New York Times and doing this and doing that. But so anytime anybody mentioned anything on CompuServe, I copied and pasted it in and sent it to them. Well, they loved it. They loved reading all that stuff. They didn't get that information from their own um, central. ITAR is, is the, became the new, um, oh, what do you call it? They're, they're the national radio, uh, national information system, okay? And they called it RITA, Rita, which is my name in Russian. So Rita's information, which they thought was really nice that they could make a joke in another language too, and I would, I would too. So I was their information source. Maggie wasn't just a source of information for the Russian cosmonauts, though. She was also a source of companionship, levity and entertainment to several of the crews on Mir. Do you like the bulletins I send you? Are they okay? And I really liked the space chicken recipe <laughs> to uh, cook a chicken recipe. Very nice. Over. All good. Thank you very much. Good. Oh, that's a relief. Oh, very, very nice. One time, um, I, I had a friend over, uh, uh, Karen, Karina in, in Russian, and uh, we were sharing 
couple of glasses of red wine and they thought that was a great idea and they said okay next time we come over um, we'll play a guitar we'd have a party the only song this guy knew was my bunny lies over the ocean well Karen and I just we, we just held our sides and laughing but here's this Russian accent singing this old folk song and so we sang, we all live in a Russian you know, space station, that, you know, that old thing from the Beatles. And it was just really goofy. One time they had visitors, um, but they said, Rita, we are having party, we're having all this new food and eating this and wonderful things. And we are all in our underwear. It's hot. Send me the video. It's like a frat house in outer space. You know, that's exactly, that's exactly it. And like any frat house, there's the obligatory macho competitiveness. In this case, even though relations were warming between the USSR and the USA, and soon they'd collaborate on space missions, they were both nursing a hangover from the decades-long space race. And in more modest ways, the two nations were still trying to outgun each other. For instance, um, the, the wonderful thing about the, the American um, uh, space program, we're wondering how they could create a pen, because ballpoint pens don't write upside down, so I'm not going to write in space. So what would they use? You know, they spent all this money trying to develop a special pen. The Russians used a pencil. I was just thinking that. I mean, I obviously talked to all these different people over several years. Um, who, who did you have the, the kind of the longest relationship with in terms of communicating on a regular basis? Uh, Sergei Krikalyov. Okay. And uh, he was there for an entire year. And the reason he was there for an entire year is he was supposed to return, but they ran out of money. Well, they could either abandon the Mir space station and have everybody come home, because it's expensive to send up another crew and back and forth and all this. So they asked him, could he stay up for another six months? And he agreed to. Right? So he stayed up there. Sergei contacted me every day for one year. Now, Sergei was really into ham radio, and he just wanted to communicate. So that's when I got some new software, gave him remote access to my hard drive, and he was able to um, read lots of stuff that I had left for him, which he loved, which is why he connected to me every day. And he'd leave me a message. I'd come home and I'd see this little yellow light blinking on my modem because there's a message store that, yes, okay. Sergei Krikalev, who Maggie had been talking to every day for a few months, went to Mir on the last Soviet mission to space. While he was in orbit, Gorbachev was deposed and Boris Yeltsin seized power in a coup that ultimately failed. When Gorbachev returned to Moscow a few days later, he was politically impotent. The Communist Party was banned and the Soviet Union dispersed. In 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. Yeah, and so and Sergei, who went up to Mir as a Soviet citizen, suddenly was a Russian citizen. Wow. Ironically, part of the reason that amateur radio operators like Maggie could access the cosmonauts on Mir was because of President Gorbachev's policy of glasnost, a shift towards openness, a shift away from the paranoid closed-up policies of communism. It was a little contrary, while the cosmonauts could talk to strangers on any continent about anything, they still didn't have access to Western media in their own country. So Sergei relied heavily on Maggie's electronic bulletin board. Mission Control in Moscow was sending conflicting reports from both political factions, and the cosmonauts, Sergei and Anatoly Antsibarsky, a cosmonaut who'd arrived in May that year, 
remained suspended in the cosmos in a state of confusion. Funding for the space program was uncertain, and the USSR operating manual dictated that they return to Earth in the event of war, but nothing was specified for a political you coup. Were you taking politics with him? No, but I did ask him. And and basically he talked about um, the excitement that he would plunge, he actually used that word, he would plunge into his new life um, as a Russian citizen, and uh, yeah, things were going to be fine, he was, he was okay with that. Uh, so he found that, you know, exciting. Then I would send information. Uh, that, that's the only time I got political. And I would send them um, snippets of uh, news that was happening in Moscow and some of the other parts of Russia. I, I would get phone calls from um, AAP, because there was a ham radio operator there. <laughs> he would just relay lots of questions. Like, he would say, um, I've heard that um, Coca-Cola, you know, is is doing some kind of an experiment. They want to know how the Russians are, do they like Coca-Cola and stuff. So I asked them, I said, AAP wants to know. And Sergei said, orange juice tastes better. After Sergei had made that definitive judgment on the superiority of orange juice, Arsi Baski returned to Moscow and was replaced with another cosmonaut. Sergei remained on board and saw the new year of 1992 in. After 311 days in orbit, his mission finally ended. When he returned home to a whole new country, he still had his Communist Party membership card with him, earning him the title, the last Soviet citizen. Maggie continued talking to several crews on Mir, and in 1994, she was invited to speak at NASA in Houston. After wrapping up his cosmic duties with the Soviet space program, now dutifully renamed the Russian space program, Sergei had been snapped up by NASA and was in Houston at the time, giving Maggie the chance to meet the spaceman who she'd talk to every day for a whole year. The ham radio group there had invited me to speak. So, wow, you know, invitation to NASA, holy crow. And um, I, wanted, I was going to speak on my contacts with the Russian space station, and um, I, I gave my speech, and I did part of it in Russian, did part of it in English. Uh, by then, my Russian was a little bit better. It was just a fantastic experience. And to let the Americans know that there's a different way of managing stuff. And, uh, you know, I poked some fun at them, but I can. But I remember she made this ridiculous comment during the, um, during the speech. She was talking about desert winds blowing through our house. <laughs> it was just, she just dramatized really well, <laughs> and they totally bought it. So I did, and I had fun, and it was all good feelings all around. And it was very exciting to be invited. Did Sergei know um, what you looked like before that? Had he any no. idea? No. So you recognise him because, you know, his, I, oh, yes. his images obviously oh, everywhere. Yeah, all over. Um, but he didn't know. He, no. Wow. I, I looked at Sergei and we were allowed down on the bottom floor instead of in this upper ring we walk around. And and I looked at him and I said, oh my God, I've spoken to this guy every day for a year. And here he was in real time. And I said to him in Russian, I said very politely, is it okay if I hug you? And he said, da, конечно. In 2001, after 15 years orbiting the Earth, Mir's space odyssey ended. As it re-entered the Earth's atmosphere, Mir splintered into small pieces that shot through the sky like stars before being swallowed by the Pacific Ocean. A remarkable chapter of Maggie's life came to a close. How did you feel? Did you watch that on TV? Oh, broken hearted. 
broken hearted. It was a big part of my life. Um, the boys used to hear the sounds of packet radio because, you know, I mean, our ADSL is really high. It was 300 baud. I mean, you could hear that bzzat, bzzat. Uh, so they used to be listening to that all night long. But I mean, they were awake anyway because they had asthma. That whole time mum was doing that, I was about 10 to 14. So I was pretty young. So I never understood the significance of it. I didn't understand that, you know, she'd made world history. I didn't understand that she was talking to these guys while communism had ended. And they were coming home to, to a country that didn't exist when they when they left Earth. I didn't understand any of that. Um, the coolest time was when we were at a we at like a, an all-you-can-eat seafood restaurant in the U.S. in Houston, and she was she was just out in the car park with a um, handheld radio, and Mia was going overhead, and she was talking to them as you know as we were all standing there watching Mia. I thought that was so cool, and you never think your mom's cool, but that was just amazing. That's you, Cosmic Frequency was produced by Jesse Burrell for the website Paper Radio. Paper Radio is an audio journal based in Melbourne, Australia. For a link to their website, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. It really doesn't matter where you are in the world, or even if you're out of it, the world that is, it's still easy to become our comrade on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. You can also email us, send questions, comments, rants, and raves to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. There's no comparison between the U.S. and Russia when it comes to one thing, drinking. We may have our strohs, but they have their stoli and lots of it. Here or there, alcoholism is extremely difficult to treat, unless you find a miracle cure, which is exactly what the Russians did. Reporter Gregory Warner went to investigate. For me, this all started with a story I heard about a friend's ex-boyfriend, a Russian alcoholic who promised he'd never, ever drink again. Story was he got a capsule surgically inserted under his skin, some kind of chemical compound such that if he drank, that capsule would explode into his bloodstream and kill him. When I got to Moscow, I found out there are dozens of clinics that do this procedure. I visit one of them with my translator, Anna Mastrova. So is this the waiting room? So it's a private clinic. It's a nice place. There's a fish tank in the waiting room, lush carpet, and a list of treatments on the wall. We have all kinds of massage, like craft therapies. And then we're summoned to the office of the head doctor, Vashislav Davidov. He's got a pinstripe suit and bright, bright green eyes. So usually this capsule is inserted into the buttocks. <clears throat> that is under the skin. 
of your buttocks. Поэтому и назвали торпеда. Actually, that's why it was called a torpedo, because it is placed in a person's butt and kept the way a torpedo in a submarine is kept. And then, if you have a drink, watch out. Исключить смерть нельзя. One can never exclude death, but of course the doctor is not going to kill his patient. Uh, but uh, the person will feel very bad, extremely bad. You will have uh, pains, almost unbearable pains. Shortness of breath, nausea, vomiting, throbbing headache, visual disturbance, mental confusion, and circulatory collapse. And these medicine can remain in the body from a short period of time to like three years, for instance. Is the capsule in some way a placebo? A placebo? No, it's not a placebo. Yes, it's not a placebo. If you don't believe, I can give you a pill for one day. Okay. And you drink. I said I'd take the pill. And um, can you give me a pill that would last? Um, Three years? If you agree. Here's why I agreed. I couldn't leave Davidov's office without seeing the capsule, figuring out what's in it. But the whole time we'd been in his office, he wouldn't show me the pill or any of the clinic. The only way I was going to be able to see this supposed medicine was to agree to take it. You'll be patient. You'll be a patient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You ready? Yeah, let's go. So, we leave his office, head upstairs, down this long hallway. There's a sound of screaming. He leads me into the procedure room. Just like an exam room in a doctor's office. You got the white furniture, the sterile instruments, except against one wall is this old green leather chair with thick straps that go on your arms and your legs. And he tells me he's going to strap me into that chair Give me a pill with the same medicine that's in the torpedo, and then he'll test it. So you take a pill and he'll give you a drop of alcohol. This is called a provocation because he puts just a drop of vodka on my tongue. Once that drop of vodka hits my tongue, I will feel all those symptoms. Your heart sinks. You can't breathe. In general, a person feels he's dying. Sometimes people are so scared they urinate right here. Maybe I'll, uh, can I take it at home? <laughs> so I uh, actually no, I don't want to take it. Chicken out. I can't do it. I'm not, I'm not strong enough. He at that point realized he had won. And he shows me the pill. This is what is inserted in the body. Really, this is it. It's so little, little, little. So it turns out that inside that little pill is a very real drug. It's called disulfiram. And it was, it was actually a substance that was used in the rubber industry. Eugene Rakel is an assistant professor at the University of Chicago. And they found that the uh, workers in the rubber industry were unable to tolerate um, alcohol. Disulfiram blocks a certain enzyme from being absorbed by the liver. So when you drink, it causes all these very real symptoms. But it's only in Russia that they sell these very long-acting capsules. Basically, they tell you that they're injecting a long-acting form of disulfiram, which is not something that exists. It does not last three years. In fact, it barely lasts a week. But this is not 
fringy at all. He says that up to 80% of addiction treatments by Russian doctors are procedures like this torpedo. Yeah. Meaning this is more popular than Alcoholics Anonymous and every other kind of treatment combined. Even my interpreter, Anna, her uncle was an alcoholic. Uh, He could go fishing and then disappear for a night and nobody knew where he was. I mean, everybody knew that he was drunk. Then he got a procedure like the torpedo. Yeah, I don't know how it worked, but it did work for him because he hadn't drunk till the rest of his life. Rachel says that if it worked, it's partly because Russians understand addiction differently. I think that here's the distinction. You know, in North America, the prevailing understanding of addiction is it's it's not about the substance as much as it is about the fact that you're kind of out of touch with some kind of truths about your self and your condition. Whereas in Russia, he says, many of the patients I talk to say, I don't actually have to change myself in any way. I don't have to become a different person. I just have to get rid of my addiction, which is what Dr. Davidov offers. When he gives you that pill and he puts that drop of vodka on your tongue, he scares that part of you into submission. And what rules this world? Fear. For this service, he charges 5,000 rubles, $170. And if, a few weeks later, you ignore his warning and you do take a drink and nothing happens, well, then you call up Dr. Davidoff and he'll tell you that... It's like a delayed reaction. That torpedo poison is loose in your bloodstream could cause a heart attack or cancer, and you need to purchase the antidote. And how much is the antidote? Voicim. Eight thousand rubles. Eight thousand rubles. About three hundred dollars. If you want a drink, you have to pay. (laughs) The Drinking Cure was produced by Gregory Warner for Marketplace. There are some instances where you may be ahead of us. For example, in the development of your of the thrust of your rockets for the investigation of outer space. There may be some instances, for example, color television, where we're ahead of you. The United States and Russia's fascination with each other isn't just political or economic or aeronautic. It's also stylistic. In the Soviet Union, goods from the West were big on the black market. Levi's were worth their weight in gold. But now it's us who look at their products of yesteryear with fascination and glee. The saturated color, campy detail, and industrial design of things that came out from behind the Iron Curtain. Producer Julia Barton discussed this with Roman Mars for the radio show 99% Invisible. Here's unsung icons of Soviet design. This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. My friend Julia Barton. That's me. Is in a New York City apartment with Michael Idov. My name is Michael Idov, and uh, I'm the editor of Made in Russia, Unsung Icons of Soviet Design. And Lawrence, a parrot that sounds exactly like the building's door buzzer. And no matter how hard we tried (laughs) to cut out Lawrence. His door buzzer imitation cannot be denied. But maybe that's okay, because Idov's new book on Soviet design is an homage to the stuff of ordinary Soviet life. Cigarettes, drinking glasses, subway token machines. And it might be hard for outsiders to see what this seemingly random collection of Soviet consumer goods have in common. But Idov believes there's something that unites them all. To define this aesthetic, you first need to realize that most of these items were uh, rip-offs of Western sources, uh, you know, of varying qualities. 
they are imitations, like the way Lawrence the parrot is imitating the door buzzer. Shut up, Lawrence. One look at the items in this book, even though they are shameless imitations, you'll see that the Soviet stuff is unmistakably Soviet. Take your Soviet soda machine. In those, carbonated drinks came not in bottles, but straight into a communal drinking glass, something chained to the machine. And the excruciating Soviet arcade games were designed by the Committee on Amusement. Most Americans haven't even seen these artifacts, but in a way, we're responsible for them. Basically, it all goes back to the kitchen debates. In 1959, there was this wildly successful American exhibit in Moscow. It's the official opening of the American Exposition, counterpart of the Soviet trade show in New York, and dedicated to showcasing the highest standard of life in our country. Vice President Nixon showed Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev around the exhibit, and they stopped in front of a model suburban home to address an audience before new American uh, color TV cameras. There are some instances where you may be ahead of us. For example, in the development of, your, of the thrust of your rockets for the investigation of outer space. There may be some instances, for example, color television, where we're ahead of you. But in order for both of us, for both of us to benefit, for both of us to benefit, you see, you never concede anything. Michael Adolf says that despite Khrushchev's bombast and the recent success of Sputnik, the Soviets were humiliated by all of America's stuff. Khrushchev decided the Soviet people needed stuff too. But it was a huge struggle for the Communist Party to switch Soviet factories from producing tanks and rockets to cassette decks and hair dryers. Usually the way it worked was, you know, some party guy would uh, would come back from a foreign trip and, and bring in, uh, you know, a German radio and uh, give it to the engineers and say, uh, make one like it. And then uh, they would just reverse engineer it. And then they would look around for, you know, the guy who draws well. And they're like, all right, well, can you draw? Okay, you do the logo. And that would be the logo that would last for the next 40 years. The system produced a lot of strange stuff, but sometimes the Soviets did better than the original. Take the unbelievably cool magazine, Krugazor. No, everybody should just bow down before the glory of, uh, of Krugazor. It was supposedly based on something Khrushchev saw while in the United States, a magazine with a record in it. Idov calls it the original podcast. It actually sounds like public radio. That's <laughs> what it is. There would be uh, an article in the magazine and then and the contents of the vinyl disc would somehow illustrate the article. You know, there would be uh, the sounds of the, you know, the forest or something like that, or, or folk songs of, of some uh, far-flung tribe. Or this. What started happening over time was, you know, since uh, the people who made this magazine had access to something, you know, unbelievably awesome for the Soviet Union, which is, you know, vinyl of press. Uh, they started uh, slipping in a little pop music in there. It was the round tear-out discs in Krugazor that gave Russians their first non-bootleg recordings of everyone from Barbara Streisand to Pink Floyd to Michael Jackson. The main thing that unites the designs in Made in Russia is that they're often the only designs. Michael Idov didn't pick from shelf loads of, say, different cassette recorders. Most Soviets had one, the Visna. And the BK Electronica personal computer probably made Russian-speaking hackers the best in the world through its sheer awfulness. Nobody had any other choice. 
far be it for me to suggest that this is actually a good thing, but it certainly simplifies uh, getting to know <laughs> one another because if you grew up in the Soviet Union and you're you know my age or older, I already know so much about you. Including the song that puts you to bed at night. You know, if you grew up in the Soviet Union, uh, it's just seared into your brain. I, I can I can sing it for you yeah. if you want. How does it go? I think it goes спят усталые игрушки, книжки спят. La, 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 la. This theme from a children's puppet show aired every night at 8:15 on Soviet television. You can't really call the crude animal puppets icons of Soviet design, but Idov put them in his book anyway. Спят усталые игрушки, книжки спят. Because with their bright eyes and worn-out fur, Krusha the pig and Stepashka the bunny represent a lost universe. Eleven time zones closed off from the rest of the world, making their own stuff in their own way. The tired toys are sleeping now. That's how the song goes. Good night, Roman. Unsung Icons of Soviet Design was produced by Julia Barton and Roman Mars for 99% Invisible, a tiny radio show about design, architecture, and the 99% invisible activity that shapes our world. Can our government be competent? Jimmy Carter says yes. Jimmy Carter says yes. Can our government be honest? Jimmy Carter says yes. Despite the many differences between Russia and the United States over the years, one common denominator is music, specifically political theme songs. I mean, what political campaign worth its salt is complete without one? Jimmy Carter says yes. Vladimir Putin, three-term president of the Russian Federation, most recently elected in 2012, has had some very popular songs written about him. As we hear again from producer Julia Barton, Russia's best-known pro-Putin and anti-Putin songs were, oddly, written by the same man. Alexander Yellen sits in an expensive cafe in downtown Moscow. The 53-year-old is partly bald. What's left of his graying hair is tied back in a ponytail. Yellen is a lyricist. He writes the words that others sing. Ten years ago, Yellen bet a friend $200 that he could create a hit song in Russia on the cheap. Yellen won the bet. His song, A Man Like Putin, became so huge, it's been translated into English, more or less. My boyfriend is dumb, he smokes and he's drunk. My boyfriend is dumb, but in power is Austin. I told him get out, I need a new boy. I found him, I know he must be like Putin. He must be like Putin. When A Man Like Putin came out, Putin had been president for two years. Yellen says his song reflected the country's admiration for the man. 
тот момент была такая эйфория о том, что пришел новый молодой лидер, который... At that moment, there was such a euphoria that there was this new young leader who'd moved the country forward. And the song was a bit ironic. It was written in a way to depict Putin as the ideal man, even the ideal husband for women. Yellen may have written a man like Putin as light satire, but it wasn't taken that way. Vladimir Putin made it his anthem and even played it at rallies. Yellen, who'd been a dissident rocker in the Soviet days, seemed a bit uncomfortable with the embrace. But even just a few years ago, he told foreign journalists there was no point in writing anti-Putin songs. No one would listen to them. All that changed in September when Prime Minister Putin announced he was running for president again. An opposition leader asked Alexander Yellen if he'd write a different kind of song now, one that reflected the country's disgruntled mood. Our madhouse votes for Putin is from the viewpoint of a patient in a psychiatric ward. Why is there a hole in my head and in the budget, he asks his doctor. Why instead of tomorrow, today is yesterday? It's all so complicated, the patient concludes. It's just too messed up. Our madhouse will vote for Putin. And with Putin, we'll be happy. Alexander Yellen says mental illness was an obvious metaphor for the way Russians view their leaders. Schizophrenia seems to me inherent in Russians. On the one hand, Russians don't love those in power, but on the other, they just go along with everything that's done in the political arena. Yellen and his group Rabfak, the Soviet acronym for Workers' College, released the song in October, and the video went viral. Rob Fock performed at protest rallies here in Moscow last December. A group of Russian linguists named Our Madhouse Votes for Putin the Russian phrase of the year. The last time Yellen won that honor was in 2002 for the phrase, A Man Like Putin. All told, Yellen says, he made about $8,000 off A Man Like Putin, plus the $200 bet. He doesn't regret writing the song. He even hopes it might get recorded again. This time, its satirical nature might come through, he says. That was Julia Barton reporting from Moscow for PRI's The World. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. Today's episode was produced by Katie Mingle and Dennis Funk. The program is curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear nearly 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. 
The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.